Here. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and later I'll be on Apple Podcasts and TalkLawRadio.com. Today we're going to be talking about guardianship and the role of the guardian. Marquardt Law Firm is sponsoring our show today, and attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans, new businesses and old businesses, which might have issues with corporations, contracts, LLCs, family-limited partnerships, and we can represent those who are facing problems from lack of planning, like getting access to an incapacitated person's bank account if he or she is suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. Check out our blog at marquartlawfirm.com and learn about confronting your parents about power of attorney. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with your professional individual advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing and failing to do your will. Please help Attorney Kelly Cross and me give good information to the listeners today about the role of the guardian in a guardianship. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now it's time to discover... Your Legal Issue Blind Spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today we're talking about the role of the guardian with attorney Kelly Cross. Kelly Cross is a graduate of the University of Louisville. She earned a master's in business administration from Xavier University. After receiving her MBA, attorney Cross returned to her father's alma mater here in San Antonio at St. Mary's University School of Law. Soon after being admitted to practice in Texas, Kelly credentialed as a mediator. Within a few years, she became acutely aware of many families struggling with issues associated with failing to plan for incapacity and asset protection. And she 
observed a, a situation involving a catastrophic injury causing death. Thereafter, she became a National Master Guardian and later was awarded the Star Award for her work with and for incapacitated people. Attorney Cross has served as the president of the Elder Law Section of the San Antonio Bar Association and was a founding member of the Wills Clinic, which served hundreds of low-income citizens. For over 20 years, she's lectured in the areas of elder law, mental health, guardianship, and fiduciary relationships. She was elected as statutory probate court judge in Bear County and later joined the law offices of Chris Pettit to extend the Pettit Law Firm's estate planning and personal injury practice to underserved rural communities. I'm so grateful and excited to talk to you about the role of guardian today. Oh, thank you. To start, please share with us a little bit about your work as a guardian. Oh my goodness, my work as a guardian, I became a guardian, I think, for the first time in 1993, 1994, and I had accepted a Friday afternoon appointment that was an emergency case, and before I knew it, it became my life. It became my passion. It was my calling. So I had this one little lady... And at the time, I had been waking up at night with uh, wanting to have children. You know, every woman goes through this. So I'm in my early 30s. Boy, I want that baby, my whole biological body, clocked, whatever you want to call it. And one night, I woke up, and the prayer that was present in me was, you're a guardian. For the little old lady. uh Uh-huh. And after that, I slept well. Um, I knew that was the answer to everything I wanted to do with my maternal instincts, my extra compassion and love. And sure enough, I went in the next day and uh, got off every other case I was doing. Criminal, divorce, custody. Mm-hmm. I just gave them all away. So that you could focus on the being the guardian or guardianship law? On everything about it. Mm -hmm. What got this person to there? What happened to their family? What dynamics are at play that we didn't learn in law school? How do you know this is a bad person or a bad time? All of the things that make you a real person come and blend with medical issues Mm -hmm. and with legal issues. And no truer place has two things that can be uh, true at the same time than as guardianships, where you have ability with disability, Mm -hmm. and they're both true. So I stopped, and I started to educate myself. Our current probate judges thought I'd starve to death because there weren't very many million-dollar cases. Mm -hmm. Well, I hadn't been praying for a million dollars. I had been praying for a baby, and this is what I got. You just wanted to help people. Well, this was my answer to everything that was in me. So, yeah, it was a way of helping people and helping families as I got 
more experience with what they were going through by becoming the guardian, then I'd know what their path was. I'd have a better way to empathize Mm -hmm. because I had been there. And it's so much to learn. There's just so much good. And there's so much evil that exists all at the same time. So it was a, it's lifelong. I'm still learning. And so at that time, back in 1993, what, was, what were some of the requirements that you had to meet to be a guardian? I think you showed up and said yes. So there wasn't a lot of red tape that you had to get through? No, and even before then, you could just walk down with a piece of paper to the judge, the county judge, and they could sign saying you were the guardian. So over time, Texas really started to build wonderful law in this area. They corrected mistakes. They always stayed as close to the Constitution and civil rights as possible. And where they overstepped, they would swing back and try to get a balance. And we're seeing that. I have lived through the great reform of 1993. Uh, I've lived through it again uh, when APS did another reformation, when the laws did a reformation, and we have supports and services and alternatives, all of that. Okay, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll talk more about what, what it's like today for people to become a professional guardian, and then we'll talk more about the role of a family member guardian and how that might be different. So we're here with attorney Kelly Cross, former statutory probate judge, talking about the role of the guardian. So stay tuned. for yourself or your home. Without powers of attorney, your loved ones will be forced to the world of court battles and guardianship lawsuits to declare you to be incapacitated. Better yet, ask about a living trust containing your instructions about where you want to live, how you want to be taken care of, if you have a heart attack, stroke, or develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Call Marquardt Law Firm and find out how a living trust can help your loved ones settle your affairs without a judge in court. Call 210-530-4278. That's 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking about guardianship and the role of the guardian with attorney Kelly Cross. You were telling us your experience uh, as a a young attorney being serving as guardian. Um, What would that look like today if somebody was going to be a professional guardian for guardianship? Well, first of all, I never saw myself as a professional guardian. I don't, I know people use that language, but it doesn't really apply in where I started. Now, if you want to be a professional guardian, it means that you're going to make money off of people you don't know. And so while I 
did that back in the day, I when I first began my law practice, uh, I made a, a pact with, with Jesus that I would do a third of my work for free. You know, he was 33 when he died, and so I thought this was good. Oh, wow. So what I took in, even usually as clients uh, in this area, the first question wasn't, can you afford me? Mm-hmm. The first question, I think, to a private professional or a uh, family or a friend is, is this guardianship needed and why? Mm-hmm. And what what are you doing there? Because the idea of a guardian is to look at the person that you're being appointed through the law. Now we have beautiful, beautiful law that requires the proposed person that's going to go under the guardianship to be served and everything's in sunlight and their family is notified and there's a a clear Fourth Amendment right that's being looked at in our laws in Texas and the sun is just shining all over that, including the First Amendment Mm -hmm. where the proposed person that's alleged to need a guardian has uh, an attorney ad litem appointed. We've always had that law, but really more of a educated person, someone that will take a minute. And even if the person is slam dunk in front of the eyes of the attorney ad litem, let's say disabled from birth, IDD, mm-hmm. from birth, severe, is it really up to the attorney ad litem to bypass the law that says there's a certain amount of information that the doctor must give on this person and that should be given to the court so that we can look at fulfilling uh, the basic law to get the guardianship and then where is this guardianship going from here? What is the guardian going to be doing? So in Texas, uh, for example, there's a little box on IDD uh, about what what that doctor is doing there. Are they originally doing the determination of IDD? Are they updating it? Are they uh, giving their opinion as far as IQ? All of those boxes have to be checked. It's not up to the attorney ad litem to decide. It's up to them to try to communicate with their mm-hmm. client yeah. and make sure. It's just like in criminal law. Um, did you ever do any criminal law? I did. Yeah. I, I've represented indigent defendants mostly for uh, Class B uh, misdemeanors. An older lawyer once taught me that if your guy is guilty or gal, hmm Make sure the state crosses all the T's and dots the I's. That's mm-hmm. your job. Because it used to be that people would say, how can you represent someone who's guilty? Well, absolutely, you, you can represent that mm-hmm. person. You, you make sure that the law is followed. Right. And sometimes a guardian ad litem needs to do the same thing and don't take it upon themselves to be the law, but to follow the law. Right. And that is the beauty of guardianship that I found was that blend of following the law 
means respect towards the person who is alleged to be incapacitated. And to listen to that person. And I think any family who's ever dealt with IDD, they need to Google Jenny Hatch, a, a wonderful woman who was the epitome of a limited guardianship. She didn't need everything. And our law, the way guardianship uh, developed over the years, really was ahead of its time on limited guardianship. Mm -hmm. Cover the whole that's uh, needed to be covered. Not all of it because it's easy, but the ones that need it. And I think along the way, people got lazy and sloppy. And eventually, citizens who were affected by that raised their hands and said, wait a minute, and started talking to the legislature. So what you're talking about is where somebody might have a guardian, but they can still make some of their own decisions also. Correct. And it's, it's just like medicine. A doctor told me once that all of everything that they know about medicine is useless on someone who can't be inspired, persuaded, conjoled to be a part of their own treatment, mm -hmm. to be a part of their own well-being. So you have to make that choice. You have to have some ability to make a choice. If not, you're at the most basic best interest standard in life. And mm -hmm. I've, I've been around a lot of those guardianships where you have someone in their 50s still in a diaper chewing on a little children's uh, chew toy, mm -hmm. non-communicative, non-verbal. And the respect I've seen from the family towards that person is incredible. They're, they're little heroes out there everywhere. And no, they don't live in two-story, really wealthy neighborhoods with gated communities and things like that. Mm -hmm. They might have a hole in the wall. They might have 15 people living in a tiny house. And yet that one child of God is the most revered person in the home. And guardianship helps that family be able to make decisions in that person's best interest until the day God calls them home. So let's talk about that a little bit, the, the difference between a best interest and, and just a surrogate decision. So the other one is called sur substituted judgment. Okay. I know I kind of stutter on that, but I don't know why, because it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So your best interest standard is someone who's never had capacity. That's the easiest way to think about it. It's also kind of a default for substituted judgment. Substituted judgment means that you do as is written, unless it's going to cause substantial harm. You do as you know, because that person has told you mm -hmm. in whatever form of communication they can do. You do as they know because you have heard from credible sources. I call this creating a life profile. So you know who that person used to be. So when you get the person that they are now, you can try to make sense of it 
or at least try to lift up the person that they used to be before a disease or an accident, traumatic brain injury, something took them away from their life. And so if you can find out from their faith, from their friends, from their family, what would they do if they could make their decision now? So my brother is a bi-American guy, has been. He's a Vietnam War veteran forever and ever and ever. His clothes, his cars, his appliances, to the best of his ability, has always been made in America. Mm -hmm. So if he becomes incapacitated and I become his guardian of his person or estate, do you think it's right for me to buy a foreign-made car in order to transport him to medical appointments? No, you would want to follow what he would do. Same thing when you're talking about whether that person is going to get a flu vaccination, pneumonia vaccination, Mm -hmm. whether that person is going to have another amputation. You know, we live in a city of diabetes. Yeah. So is it treatable? Is it curable? Why now, not later? So there's all kinds of questions you can ask the medical end. Did it make you nervous to have to make these difficult medical decisions? Always. And Always. Did, did, did anyone ever second guess your decision? Only at the funeral. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot that we think we're in control of. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is death. And it turns out we're not. Mm-hmm. It's always best efforts. Yeah. Okay. So you've made a lot of those uh, decisions for disabled uh, individuals yourself. Before you go ahead with the guardianship, the, the law wants us attorneys nowadays to look at what alternatives have we tried to not need a guardianship and what supports and services have we tried to not need a guardianship. In, in my practice, I see a lot of uh, potential clients that are frustrated by that because they somehow think that, well, guardianship's all I need. Why don't you just get it for me? And I say, no, we have to prove to the court that we've tried these other things first. And so go try these things. We talk about some that might apply to them. And then let me know if it doesn't work, and then we'll apply for the guardianship. Well, I think you're looking at, um, it's not the court. Uh, As a former judge, we follow the law, right? So that's what Mm -hmm. we do. We're we're just following the law. And an older judge once told me, if it's written down, do that. And so when you're looking at these new laws, and they're relatively new, it's because I believe we need to swing the pendulum back towards the middle. We kind of got uh, a little further away from where we should be with limiting a guardianship and uh, throwing away uh, estate plans. I do estate plans. You do estate mm-hmm. plans. That's why it's so important for the client to 
name the second and third person. Right. It's very important for the family to start being a part of that person or the friend, be a part of that person's world before the time of need. Where is everything? Mm -hmm. Where are those papers? Um, Get comfortable if you think you're going to be needing somebody in the future and talk, talk, talk. Talk to them about end of life. Talk to them about where you want your money. Not when you're dead. Right. (laughs) But, you know, the supports and services are are so important. So we're talking about guardianship with attorney Kelly Cross, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. And when we get back, we'll talk about more about what a guardian does and the decisions that have to be made and the the resources that the guardian might look toward. And we'll talk about maintaining compliance uh, with uh, requirements of the law, how a guardian does that. We'll talk about uh, how a guardian sells real property. And uh, at the very end of the show, we'll talk about the guardianship of Britney Spears. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt, here with attorney Kelly Cross talking about the role of the guardian. Before the break, we were talking about alternatives to guardianship and supports and services that individuals should try to prevent the need for a guardianship. So this is required by the law to to try things before you ask the, the court for authority to take over somebody's decision-making. So, Kelly, uh, tell us about what you think about the that requirement that we do uh, supports and services before we apply. Well, what the law is telling you now is if you have documents, try to use them. Like power of attorney, like medical power of attorney. Trust. Mm-hmm. You know. And if you can't do that, I think it's usually because the document is way old, those people may not be alive, and the person didn't update, not a will, but documents for life, mm-hmm. you know, living documents. And I think that sometimes what happens is the disease itself breaks your trust with those you have put in the documents to become your voice when you can't speak for yourself. That is a sad thing. Mm-hmm. So while some jurisdictions don't favor temporary guardianship, in a lot of places they do, and I like it so that you can see if maybe medication, temporary hospitalization, something, something can get someone's baseline closer to where reasonable decisions are being made. Sometimes you can't do that because the disease, by the time anybody notices, has moved on. But sometimes, too, it's something simple like a vitamin deficiency or a urinary tract infection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or um, mental health that has gone awry because medications are off board. Uh, A lot of guardianships, in my mind, are, are with the elderly and with the IDD community. Mm -hmm. So you have some where 
they have uh, lived their life, and now they have lived into a chronic disease, a terrible uh, diagnosis of some sort. And I think what the first thing lawyers and families need to look at is what's the mission here? What are your what is supports and services going or not going to do? So to me, it's the same as guardianship. Are you trying to walk beside the person to make sure they're okay? So that would be, can you get somebody to come in and cook and clean? Can you get a yard guy? Uh, can it be trustworthy people? Can you get the acquiescence and the uh, preferences of the person that you're trying to help? Uh, are you trying to walk ahead of them and clear um, all decisions for them because they've never had the ability? Then you're doing something totally different with supports and services. Um, you might be that they can't do something. Uh, they can't bathe. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't make you incapacitated. Right. But that a bathing service is a support. Okay. So you have people who won't bathe. Maybe they don't remember. Maybe they have an illness that is preventing them from getting in that shower. That might be as easy as an attendant to come and help with that situation versus are you going to lift that person up and restore them with the supports and services? Do they need more OT, PT, speech therapy? Do they need um, something that can help restore them post-traumatic brain injury, post Stroke. Do they need more time? How aggressive should you be? And the supports and services and the least restrictive alternatives. In the old days, whenever somebody came in to get information about a guardianship, the goal should have been to send them away. Here's all the ideas that you and I just came up with in Mm -hmm. our counselor at law part of the discussion. Go and try Meals on Wheels. Let's try getting a driver, let's try seeing what happens if you can get mom to the doctor or the doctor to talk to mom. So it's all of those things. Try to use guardianship as a last resort. Well, the law was there for a long time, and people just blew it off. And then attorneys weren't in court encouraged or mandated to try to do more estate planning, more talk about medical powers of attorney. The uh, hospitals now can give out those medical powers of attorney right when you walk in, and it used to be the holy sanctum of attorneys. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. But uh, our directive to physicians, how do you want to have your end of life? What terminal disease do you think you might get? Did you look at that document after you got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, Parkinson's, um, bipolar Uh, anything. Do you Mm -hmm. know what your end of life is going to be? Do you know what you're going to be doing stressing out your body? Do you have a bad heart? Do you have diabetes? What are the risks if you don't get that under control? All of those things can fall under supports and services. Getting a good blood sugar level and good nutrition and good uh, support services right there is a way to check to get capacity lifted up to the highest it can be before you go into a guardianship. Yeah, stabilizing blood sugar in our community, that's uh, something that um, the whole community struggles with, and it could have an impact on decision-making. At a certain point in time, 
There could be an associated dementia that comes along with a, a diabetic condition that hasn't been um, stable in a long time. Maybe mm-hmm. the elder is forgetting to eat. Uh, maybe there's mental health issues on top of that where there's mania and they're not eating at all or there's paranoia about food or there's a lack of ability to go and get food or to reach out for people for help. There could be a million things. And so it's best for family to have that first consultation with the lawyer, and it could be that guardianship is going to happen. But if they won't allow the first person on the medical or financial power of attorney, who's the second? And do they even know it? Has there been any conversations at age 50, 60, 70 with the family, with friends? Need to have those conversations. I think so, because here's the rule, here's the big life lesson that I got over the last few years. Blink. Life just happened. Right. Things change. And just a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And they can change for good, and they can change forever, and they can change for unpleasant things ahead, obstacles. That's why I think isolation for seniors or for middle-aged people or for anyone, it's just bad. Right. You don't have to belong to a big community, but... You know, find a bowling team. Find somebody that's going to tell you, hey. How are you doing? How are you doing? What's going on? And some of these supports and services don't work, and so it, it becomes challenging and frustrating, especially with, with mental health. I mean, it's hard for a person to manage their own mental health if they have certain disorders and diseases, and for loved ones to help them. That's a challenge, too, and guardianship is not always the answer for that. So how do people deal with it? Well, you know, I think sometimes um, you have to look at how broad the needs are, how deep the holes are. Okay. And realize that sometimes the, um, the help that they need sometimes might have to be involuntary at first and that there's free choice within everyone until you can no longer move, speak. Mm -hmm. And there are people who go through catatonic periods, and they can't move or speak. There are people that go through horrendous uh, years of alcoholism and mental illness. I mean, even alcoholism can leave some lasting effects in your brain. You can burn up that frontal lobe. You can have uh, Warnicke's or the Korsakoff syndromes or all these horrible things out there that the otherwise personal choice of that person to drink almost becomes uh, not the big issue anymore. Their behavior has taken over due to a disease of alcoholism, and it's affected their brain in some significant way where they can no longer function to provide food, to provide housing, to make decisions. So it's, it's a very sad thing. Uh, alcoholism is not the same as mental illness. 
Um, one started out being a choice. The other one was not a choice. I, I don't think anybody wakes up saying, oh, gee, I want to be a, a hallucinating today or right. have an auditory um, hallucination. So the the involuntary and traumatic effect of mental illness is a way different creature. And guardianship might be a solution to that, and it might not. You might have to start with a, a mental health warrant or with um, a voluntary treatment over and over again. I think it starts with your faith community realizing that mental illness is as bad a diagnosis as going and telling people that your son has been diagnosed with cancer. The difference is you're going to get a casserole with cancer and you're not going to get a casserole with schizophrenia. Well, we have to take a break and we'll come back and talk more about that. So stay tuned. able to care for yourself or your home. Without powers of attorney, your loved ones will be forced to the world of court battles and guardianship lawsuit to declare you to be incapacitated. Better yet, ask about a living trust containing your instructions about where you want to live, how you want to be taken care of if you have a heart attack, stroke, or develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Call Marquardt Law Firm and find out how a living trust can help your loved ones settle your affairs without a judge in court. Call 210-530-4278. That's 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. We're here with Kelly Cross, attorney and former statutory probate judge, talking about the role of the guardian. Uh, We were talking about uh, the diagnosis of mental health. And uh, Kelly, you were about to say something about a program to bring better awareness to the, the problems associated with mental health. You know, I think uh, nationwide we've done a, a very good thing by deinstitutionalizing the mentally ill, uh, by trying to build alternative housing for those whose symptoms are erratic and often acute. But I think where you and I live here in Texas, we have a, a lot of really great law that protects the civil rights of those that are mentally ill. I mean, in Texas, you're allowed to be mentally ill without the government involvement. Mm -hmm. So unless you become so gravely ill that you're going to die or somebody else is going to die or be seriously harmed, Mm -hmm. and then there's ways that the government can step in, the families can step in involuntarily and force at least evaluations. But depending upon systems is very difficult. I like to depend upon uh, people. I like the fact that for the last five or so years, there's been an outreach to the different faith communities so that every faith uh, leader knows that there could be people within their congregation that might be suffering with a mental illness or that they have a child, a parent, a brother, or a sister that they're having to try to help Mm -hmm. or living the life of tragedy with them. And so I think uh, getting educated 
and doing simple outreach. I know in my faith community there was this lovely lady, and none of us knew that her son was schizophrenic and um, early diagnosis, young adult, and she was having a very difficult time, but she was working with him, and she was trying to keep him home with her and trying to keep him out of hospitalizations. And wouldn't it have been nice, uh, since she was an older single parent whose husband and the dad had already passed on, wouldn't it have been nice for her to be able to tell her faith community or her little circle of women at the altar society or the uh, Knights of Columbus or something to have a gentleman come over and try to be friends with her son or um, talk to him, uh, play chess with him, uh, take a ride, uh, help her take him to the hospital when he wasn't feeling well and convince him that, you know, things could be better for him and talk to him when things were better because mm-hmm. medicine takes a long time sometime to really work. And then the horrible tragedy of mental illness is that you don't have excess a lot of times to your frontal lobe, which means you don't have insight. So how are you doing? I'm fine. Right. I'm fine. So wouldn't it be nice that the families of those people that love that person so much had some place where they can go and ask for one-to-one or talk one-to-one and that our faith communities stop being afraid and being more fearless about uh, standing with each other. Let's help with this. Mm-hmm. Let's help with each other. So whether you're learning off the Internet or you're going to meetings, uh, whether the person is on medicine and it, it's working but not really well, it's a lifelong issue. And, and the doctors are looking at all of this cellularly and... I mean, in our lifetime, Todd, we might be able to have medicine that truly makes a difference. But it's kind of hard to tell someone, hey, I want you to take this medicine. But, gee, one of the side effects could be that your eyes roll in the back of your head and get stuck. I mean, yeah. So it's going back to being a guardian what do you know about this person? Who were they before? Can you get them back? Will they cooperate? You know, some people have to buy into the want. And some people, it's so involuntary and it's so acute. It's, it's very sad. And then you get them back to a certain level, but every time they get sick, they lose a little ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our state has great, law. We have great law, but not always a way to get that law actualized to go past the word stable. Yeah. Housing is very, um, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get housing? You know, what I found out a long, long time ago was that most mental illness, a lot of it, and it's just amazing, between 24 and 65, there's just all these mentally ill people. And yet if you're before age 24 and you have Medicaid, the federal government's going to match that state Medicaid, and mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot more services and opportunities and things are going to be available. And same thing when you get older, you have Medicare, 
and then, you know, Medicaid underneath that, so you have a lot more payment stream. But in the middle, we have this gap. And I read once that when they first started all of these systems of Social Security and Medicaid, that the federal government would drop down dollars at that in-between age group, but they found out that was so expensive, um, they repealed that part of the law that allowed the federal government to drop money into that middle age group for Medicaid. So what happens? This is when you find out your kid is schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. When? Age 22, they're still in college. When's the first psychotic break, the first big manic or depression or whatever? A lot of times it's right in there. Well, where do they live? On campus? Yeah. And so now that they've had this huge mental health moment, are they still going to be there? No. Probably not. They're going to have to step back, step out, step Mm -hmm. aside, step to a different tune. So because we don't have that middle part covered anymore, I think it affects housing, it affects medicine, it affects doctors, it affects who's going to be involved. And then science is growing, doctors' knowledge is growing, and hopefully they will figure something out because the the federal government is a great big creature so far away from all of us. We deal with the reality of living in our state. Right. And we do the best we can with what we have. And so let's say that we have a family member that is making decisions that are are causing um, worse medical outcomes and somewhat dangerous behaviors, and and we want to help. I have a a lot of clients that will say, uh, I want things to get better, but I don't know if I want to take the responsibility to be this person's guardian. So what what would happen if the family member wasn't the guardian? Well, you know, you would ask them to give you a list of all the family members, and let's go through all of them. Mm -hmm. Very few people don't have people. And then we'd look at friends. We'd look at the faith community. And if it was that truly there's no one there, a lot of times I I believe it's because they think they might have responsibilities that they can't manage. And I think it's our counselor at law part that talks to them about um, this is your person. It's not my person. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong to the state of Texas. And I think we need to have more lawyers that try to help that person manage those responsibilities using a a case manager or some other uh, support or services to help them make those decisions if they indeed are the guardian. If you have to default, the state of Texas isn't going to be your guardian without you have suffering, have had suffered some form of abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Now let that sink in. You don't want that to happen. No, you don't want that to happen. And sometimes um, it can get away from a caring family member. And then uh, the state of Texas can uh, slip that case over to one of their departments So we do have people that 
are just like with, you know, in the olden days, the ward of the state. It is not my go-to position. It is not where I tell people to go. Because they're, they're overworked and understaffed, and so they can't be there to give a lot of attention. Well, I think the ones that do this work do it with the best of their abilities. Mm-hmm. And the problem is the number of them that they might have. The, this isn't someone that they chose. So I think it's not that it always lacks heart, but it's built within a structure. So let me give you an example. One time I was the guardian of um, some children. State of Texas was the guardian of a parent. It was their first couple of months of being in separate housing. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up. Call the state of Texas. Hey, can you get your guy? And then I'll get the kids, and we'll get them together. And here's, I'll drive one way if you'll drive the next. And I was told by the supervisor that wasn't going to happen. Thanksgiving was a family holiday, and their guardian would be with their family. Wow. That's a... That's sad for the people under the guardianships. It's sad for the people of the people mm-hmm. in the guardianship because, you know, if you can find people, if you can find volunteers um, and then educate them. Let them and, know that there is help out there. Absolutely. So if you have you have the state, sometimes there's private professional guardians, which I think isn't it's just. I think it's just bad terminology. They're certified. They're going to make a tiny bit of money unless the person has SSI. Then they're going to make no money. And there are, you know, big programs, little programs, all kinds of programs. But nothing beats the care and concern of a family member or a friend or someone from your own faith community. And it does take a little bit of leadership to stand up for that. I think it takes a little <laughs> bit of, of everything. Always use your heart. Always use your head. You won't be wrong. Thank you for doing this. I enjoyed having you. It was fun. Anytime. Great. So this has been Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt. And we just got finished talking about the role of the Guardian. We'll see you next time. <laughs>